Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Greg Daly. It is wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks, Rachel. Good to be back. And last time you were on, as I, as I recall, I think it was to discuss Sophie Scholl and World War II. I think it's kind of fitting to have you back on because this for this episode, we're going to be discussing not World War II mainly, but World War One, And specifically, given that we are in the month of November, talking about Remembrance, Remembrance Sunday, commemoration, and the the marking of of the dead, and of the dead in general, given that for us Catholics, it is the month of the dead. Yeah, it's, uh, well, my, my former hat, I've worn a lot of hats in my life, was as a military historian. And although my specialist area was, was ancient Greece and Rome and Carthage, I was kind of obliged to read very, very, very widely uh, through space and time on this subject. So yeah, this is, uh, World War I is clearly an important one, and it's what defines November in a modern sense. Yeah. As, as a month of the dead. As Catholics, we would we would long have done this, being the month with all saints and all souls, and just in general, uh, we dedicate it to remembering those past uh, and praying for them. Whereas now, since World War I, we've honed in on the military dead, the dead of the world wars and, and other wars. Yeah, and I, I was saying to you in some ways, I don't know if fitting is the right word, but there is something fitting about the fact that the armistice agreement and and the end of the war does happen in November as, as a coincidence. But I think it's interesting for us as we're speaking as Irish people and we're looking across at the UK during this month. It's kind of an interesting month to observe what remembrance looks like, especially in the UK for the Great War and particularly the the poppy... Uh, branding of remembrance that has has come into our culture. Yeah, it's true. It's, it, to be honest, for me, it's always been a profoundly kind of ambivalent time of year. I'm half English, as it happens. So technically, I'm Anglo-Irish. Uh, <laughs> I'm, half, I'm half English, and so I'd have quite a few. Um, quite a few of my family would have would have served in the British Army over the years. My my great grandfather was in the Boer Wars in India before that. He was in the Chitral expedition. On my dad's side, there would have been uncles, great uncles, I suppose, uh, who were in World War One. I. I have a a German, big dramatic German pipe brought back from Germany on the shelf just in the corner here. But then, yeah, my granddad was in Palestine during World War Two, and and so on. So we've you have the kind of connection. But then, if you're if you're Irish at all, it's hard to look at British war remembrance with without being at least slightly askance in how you look at it. And then if you're Catholic, you go, OK, on the one hand, you've got All Saints Day and All Souls Day. But if you're in England, you get Guy Fawkes Night, which is, you know, everybody's required to remember, remember. And given that as a as a Catholic rebellion against the crown and the Guy Fawkes as a child, you know, one of his neighbours was was Margaret Clitheroe, who was who was horrendously martyred. So I'm not saying that his reaction, which would have been obviously brutally, brutally murderous, was the appropriate one. But I am saying that the, all these things add layers of complexity and make it hard to look at these things simply, you know, to just to recognise that there's a lot going on with all of this. Yeah, I think that's important. And I, I do want to highlight that in talking about the complexities around 
remembrance and and the the war memorials. It's not that I want to sort of decry poppy November, (laughs) but I think it's still a good opportunity to point out the somewhat difficult relationship we have in the modern age with all kinds of commemorations for the dead and that the poppy wearing and the the Armistice Day memorials are a, a part of that and a particularly notable part of that. And I think it's worth pointing out that there is a weirdness to it at the moment. And there is a kind of aggressiveness to the way that some people quite loudly, especially on social media, police the way that people mark the, mark the month. And I think in particular... I know there's often a kerfuffle about Irish football players not wanting to wear the poppy um, during November and it sort of being mandated for both public and private citizens, it seems, to wear a poppy at all times during November. And it's funny that I feel like I've always been deeply fascinated in World War One. It's one of the, the areas of history that I find most deeply compelling. And I have a huge amount of earnest interest and, and sympathy for the stories of the people involved. I think in, if I were left to my own devices, I would be probably fairly pro-poppy in that I would probably consider at least in some ways wearing it. I know there's further connotations for us Irish people that we'll dive into just to give a bit more context. But I think to me, what puts me off the, the poppy stuff at the moment is just the very like belligerence of it and the the sense of it, it being mandated as opposed to organic or earnest. I think that's, that is the case. I think it's definitely become the case. Um, so I lived in England for 10 years. And in the first five years I was there, not really did I not wear a poppy. I was never even encouraged to, uh, which given I was quite closely linked to people in, in different kind of kind of army family circles in a way, in different ways, that was kind of curious. Um, so I was there for five years. I came back for a couple of years and then went back to England for another five. And it was in that intervening period uh, when I visited once is the first time I ever wore a poppy where it was pinned on me one day by a friend who pinned the poppy on saying, I feel you should wear this. And I was going to protest. (laughs) And for for reasons to do with the kind of ambivalence, really. But at that point, I'd also been reading about how a quarter of London's homeless at that point were army veterans or service veterans, Navy, RAF, whatever. And I did feel that whatever one thinks about the wars they were involved in and so forth, there was a duty there uh, that the, the state certainly had and society in general had to look after these people. And that, that, that is something I did feel quite strongly. So I was kind of okay with the poppy then in a very serious way. The following day, I kind of got a very, very different and ironic and postmodern take on it when I was in a coffee shop having breakfast with a friend. And a guy came in wearing the poppy pinned on his T-shirt which had a big picture of Basil Fawlty on it and the legend, don't mention the war. So, um, you know, it's, uh, but since then, definitely, it it seems to become more omnipresent and uh, weirder in a way. Yeah, I've got a quote here from, um, well, it's two separate posts from actually a friend of yours, Niall Gooch, and he had a piece which was called Why Has Remembrance Become Weird? And, you know, he's, definitely someone who comes at it from being a very patriotic Englishman. And so from even from his perspective, he's still highlighting the weirdness of it. And he's saying, 
It's hard to put your finger on the best way to describe the weirdness. It's not quite sentimentality, though sentimentality is part of it, nor is it hyper-patriotism or militarism. I'd maybe describe it as a kind of desperate reverence, an artificial overwrought deference to any ritual, person or item linked to remembrance. It seems to be more and more common, for example, to describe all military personnel as heroes wherever they served, for how long and in what capacity. It seems to me to devalue the very concept of heroism. And then in, in a separate blog post, he said that his the strangeness that he sees kind of comes first from the politicization of poppy wearing in the form of a kind of popular hypervigilance about whether people in the public eye are wearing one, whether they have the correct attitude to our brave boys. There is a whiff of bullying in the air, what newsreader Jon Snow calls poppy fascism. And in, in fact, I, I was talking to you, Greg, yesterday about a Twitter account that I, I see I think it comes mainly into active for this month called Poppy Watch, which sort of posts regular pictures of sort of over the top extreme displays of remembrance this month with sort of poppy carpets across people's gardens or statues or people wearing suits made out of poppies or, or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's very true. And weirdly that, I mean, it's gone through phases of being strange in the past. Um, there was one point in the years after after the First World War when it was war veterans in particular who were troubled by the omnipresence of poppies that were starting to appear then. I think there was a feeling that it was kind of sanitizing the war. That's the background against which the kind of the white poppy movement began, which which doesn't really have the traction ever really, but it was kind of a pacifist movement that tried to, to tie in with the poppies that way. So yeah, there's always been something odd about it. But it, it seems very strange now. If remembrance is compulsory, it stops in a way being a real act of reverence. It, it's an act of convention, not of conviction, if you like. Um, mm. And that's that's probably not a great place to be in. Um, and yet, Niall's point about heroes, I think, it is a real one. Um, if you know, it's a bit like in um, in the Incredibles when the the villain says, you know. If everybody's super, then nobody's super. Well, if everybody's a hero, nobody's a hero at some level. It, it's, it, it sanitizes war, but also sanctifies war because it's hard to be a hero in a bad cause. Mm. You know, you can be brave in a bad cause. There's no doubt about that. But, but heroism, we tend to associate that with a, something moral, something good, something virtuous. Um, the ancients didn't always do that. You know, and in, 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 for the Greeks, a hero was pretty much somebody who was more than other people. And that might mean more angry or more, you know, but, but it's somebody more. But, but for us, we tend to associate it with virtue in some way. And if we say that everybody who fights and dies in war is a hero, then we're implicitly saying that the wars they fought in were just. And this isn't always the case. We know this. I've, you know, I've watched... The, the, the full ceremonies at the, the Cenotaph in London a few times, and you watch various kind of um, veterans of various campaigns, and every so often you're looking at them going, well, okay, these are guys from who fought in Cyprus, but what they're doing in Cyprus is preventing Cypriot independence. And when you get into that discussion, uh, and the obvious ones here, and again, it's probably way too complex for this, but if we're to talk about Northern Ireland, and, and you'd see how complex that would become, very quickly 
Kenya would be another one. You know, there's so many of the post-colonial wars where the question of whether there should have been an occupation in the first place is implied by the discussion about the war to prevent that occupation from ending. And are the people who die in that cause, are they really heroes? So it, it, it is complicated. Yeah, I think I think that's worth explaining for any of our listeners who are not quite so familiar with the various political histories of, of the British Isles. Even, even the term the British Isles is quite a contentious one. <laughs> Greg is shaking his head in horror. But... <laughs> but yeah, I, I the the reason why there's such a reticence in Ireland around poppy wearing and 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 the associated war memorialization is because it commemorates all British military action, which includes the oppression of of Ireland and and military action in Ireland, and it, and in particular our feeling about World War One is particularly complex because we do actually have a lot of Irish people that go and fight with the British. So you have one part of the country that very much wants to remember and wants to commemorate and memorialize those people and, and the sacrifice that they made. Uh, there's another part that feels that that was traitorous to to go in with the, with the British in the in their military cause at that point. And then, of course, in the middle of the, the Great War, you have our 1916 Rising, which was the kind of first decisive blow, but not, it, it, it kind of doesn't come to fruition for another couple of years, but the first decisive blow in, in terms of Ireland's independence. And not only does it just happen to happen in 1916, but it deliberately happens in 1916, because the leaders understood that this was maybe one of the few chances when they could try and strike for independence when they wouldn't have the full might of the British army down on them within an instant, because guess what? It turns out the British army is kind of busy having a terrible time at the Somme. And and so much so that I was reading, I live near the burial place of the, the leaders of the 1916 Rising who were executed. And again, that's another part of it, that the, the Rising was deeply unpopular with a, a lot of people in Ireland while it was happening until the British executed the leaders. And then it sort of became immensely popular. But I was reading the Proclamation of Independence, which specifically says that Ireland is doing this from its own strength, but in in conjunction with its European allies. It, do, it doesn't take a lot of maths to work out. Our European allies are not England or France. They are Germany, who is running guns for us. Actually, I was reading, I think it's in, we're going to talk a lot about a book called The Great War and Modern Memory, but I think it says it in that book that at the start, just, be, just before the outbreak of World War I, People in England were expecting war, but what they were expecting was war with Ireland. Like that was that was the the trouble or the military action that was the the, the one that's expected, as opposed to what ends up happening. And so, it, it it's these elements that make it particularly fraught in Ireland to approach the Great War and the memorialization of it. Uh, but I think, to be honest. That's just kind of par for the course with the Great War. I think it's it's such a difficult, complex, and it, it's a war that's hard to nail down into a narrative that makes sense. We were just saying before this starts, there's this tendency to view the Second World War as the good war, because it's the one, even when you have to omit a lot of atrocities on the Allied side, is a lot easier to condense into a very good versus bad narrative, whereas the World War One is a lot more complicated than that. And I think that's where 
the sort of aggressive commemorization of it with this poppy watch approach is kind of a disservice because it, it suggests that it's an easy, easily defined and easy thing to have coherent feelings about. Yeah, well, one of the things that Niall talks about in his thing, and he doesn't use the phrase virtue signaling, and I think it would be, it's a phrase I don't like normally, but I think it, it can be appropriate, is that from a institutional, almost governmental point of view, the commemoration of the war is is has become a virtue signaling exercise because it's all about paying homage to these people, paying honour to them and so on, which for what it's worth costs you nothing. You know, that's a free exercise. Uh, and most you're spending a couple of quid uh, as individuals on your little paper flower or you're spending a few million maybe as the government on a big exhibition somewhere. But what you're not doing is you're not investing in your armed forces. You're not looking after the pensions. You're not looking after the people who've been in it. You're not maintaining mm-hmm. your equipment, your, your whatever it might be. So you're actually not doing what's needed um, to sustain this while at the same time, um, you're talking a very, very, very big game. Um, and I think this happens quite a bit, this kind of, um, I don't know, it's almost what Bonhoeffer used to call cheap grace, you know, and this is kind of a, a, a secular form of cheap grace, really. I think it's kind of exemplified, and you were the one who pointed this out to me, in the fact that in with the with the poppy wearing comes the reading of the poem in Flanders Fields by John McRae, which everyone reads all the time and then sort of, misses the point of entirely yeah well that's i mean that's astonishing it, it, it's mccray's poem that and I, i'll get into the detail of that in a minute but it's mccray's poem that basically begins the poppy phenomenon in the context of the war in a, in a strange way so you've got this canadian doctor serving in flanders who writes this particular poem in 1915 and that gets published and becomes very popular and then an american lady in september 1918 reads this poem and she's read it a few times already but it just hits home with her then and it's coming off this she writes her own poem which is a reply to it and her own poem almost sets the ball rolling then for let's use poppies as a way of deliberately commemorating the war and so to go back to the 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 mccray poem i mean you were talking about this yesterday and Fussell brings it out a lot that the poppy, of course, has a, a huge history in English literature and classical literature as this flower of forgetfulness, flower of pain relief. It's linked with opium, basically. It's the flower of dreams. It's the flower, the flower that takes away pain. And, of course, there are a lot of them in the areas around the Western Front. Um, there's a couple of flowers that grow very easily on ground that's been blown to pieces basically the, fl- the poppy is one and um, the cornflower is another and that's become the symbol in france but yeah so the, the poppy is kind of this thing that's growing on the rubble of the western front and i don't know were you going to read the poem that seems kind of an obvious thing to yeah. do yeah there's a couple of poems i want to read don't worry for our listeners none of them are particularly long i think not nothing exceeds three stanzas so so you don't have to go get a cup of tea but yeah i'll, I'll read it out for the sake of discussion so the, the poem goes, In Flanders fields the poppies blow Between the crosses row on row That mark our place and in the sky The larks still bravely singing fly Scarce heard amid the guns below We are the dead short days ago We lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow Loved and were loved and now we lie in Flanders fields 
Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high, if ye break faith with us who die. We shall not sleep though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Yeah, and, and I mean, the, th- the thing that's really kind of striking about that is we, we tend to kind of home in on the first verse in particular, maybe the second. I, I long had a vice where I never knew what songs were about because I'd remember the first line or two and never the rest. And then I'd be startled <laughs> when people would say, like, you know, it's about something horrendous. <laughs> I'd go, really? I'd, I'd look and go, oh, yeah, it is. And, and I think this happens a lot with this particular poem because... The first two verses, first two stanzas are very wistful, you know, they're, I mean. Pastorally. Yeah, they're pastoral. I mean, you've got the guns still going in them, you know, the, the larks are scarcely heard and they're singing. We can hardly hear them over the guns. But nonetheless, broadly speaking, it's a pastoral elegiac kind of poem. And then you hit the third verse, which which is actually staggering. And, and it, it's, it's an aggressive and dangerous verse, if you listen to it. You know, take up our quarrel with the foe. So pick up where we've left off. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. So it's almost like a relay race of fighting. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders field. In other words... This is, is, it's an appeal to everybody else not to let their debts be in vain and to fight on. It's an appeal against a negotiated surrender. Uh, I mean, this is 1915. You've got Benedict XV has become Pope a few months earlier. He is the great Pope of peace, calling for it at the time. There's a real push on, you know, it's, this is many months after all over by Christmas now, you know, it's, it's nine months later or something like that. The war is still going on. You've got Benedict XV calling for peace. And you have McRae writing this poem, which is basically saying, don't, do not negotiate, do not have a peace. You have to fight and you have to win this. And we hear this this kind of rationale so many times. It happens in Ireland when we have our War of Independence with Britain. Shortly afterwards, a discussion becomes, would the men of 1916, would the men who died for our independence, would they accept anything less than a republic? Should, you know, are we dishonouring their sacrifices by doing this? And it carries on through in our modern peace processes and stuff like that. It's a constant, it's a constant vice, really, whether or not the dead, whoever they might be, whether they are being suitably honoured by how we behave now and whether we are fighting enough for what they fought for. I mean, you can argue it's a version of the sunk cost fallacy. You know, mm-hmm. um, I've waited 45 minutes for the bus you know, would I be squandering that time if I gave up now? You know, it's a version of that, really. But yeah, yeah. Um, so as I say, it was, the lady's name was Moina Bell Michael. Uh, she's from Georgia, and she would have been 59 when she she got involved in this. She wanted to kind of join up to help the Americans in Europe. She applied for a YMCA training course with them to become an overseas war secretary. She was too old. She was deemed 50, 59, deemed too old to do this. So instead, she got a role in the OWS, uh, the Overseas War Secretary's head office. And it's in this context that she reads the poem and writes her own poem. It's kind of an answer to it, where she says, Oh, you who sleep in Flanders fields, sleep sweet to rise in you. We caught the torch you threw, and holding high, we kept the faith with those who died. We cherish, too, the poppy red that grows on fields where valour led. It seems to signal to the skies that blood of heroes never dies but lends a luster to the red of the flower that blooms above the dead in Flanders fields. And now the torch and poppy red, 
where in honour of our dead. Fear not that ye have died for naught. We've learned the lesson that you taught in Flanders Fields. And that's that's pretty much what starts the whole thing off, really. Mm, yeah, and I think that's really interesting. And I think that's maybe where we springboard into a, a slightly different discussion, which is is more to do with not just sort of critiquing this poppyism, but the fact that the poppyism belies a kind of forgetfulness, which is both fitting and ironic. And if you know anything about the Great War, irony is at home in the Great War. But there's a sense of it, like you were saying, that the original pushback, that the the kind of poppy wearing oversimplifies what was going on and as Niall points out too readily makes makes heroes and and that's not I, when I say that especially in the context of World War One that is not to say I think anyone who spent any second in the trenches of World War One had a degree of bravery and fortitude more than than I think I could have but it, it's more to say that it, to make them heroes is almost to sort of mythologize them as 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 people other than just people who were put in a horrendous situation that that was one of the like if you had to pick out the worst places to be at various times in history i do think the western front is kind of up there for me like that's that's one place i really really don't want to be in history and we're going to touch a little bit more on the sort of literary aspect of of the war and 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 how it's recorded and how it's passed down through literature but there's one poem here and again it's three stanzas but this is by Siegfried Sassoon and it's such a powerful counterpoint and i think it'll go into helping us understand remembrance actually from a more Catholic point of view, and he's he's a lot more cynical about what it means to memorialize the dead. So this is his poem on passing the new Menin Gate. He says, Who will remember, passing through this gate, the unheroic dead who fed the guns? Who shall absolve the foulness of their fate, those doomed, conscripted, unvictorious ones? Crudely renewed, the salient holds its own, Paid are its dim defenders by this pomp, paid with a pile of peace-complacent stone, the armies who endured that sullen swamp. Here was the world's worst wound, and here with pride their name liveth forever, the gateway claims. Was there ever an immolation so belied as these intolerably nameless names? Well might the dead who struggled in the slime rise and deride this sepulchre of crime. Yeah, it's it's striking that Sassoon writes this in, I think it's 1927, it's just after the gate has been inaugurated. And he uses a kind of language that I think will be unacceptable now, almost. I mean, that's, that's to overplay it, perhaps. But, you know, uh, as you said, these kind of, unheroic dead, specifically calling them unheroic. It, it's strange that the language of many of those who who lived through the war and lived through the Western Front experience, and we, and we do need to remember the Western Front is not the entirety of World War One. Absolutely. The, the language of this is not a language of heroism. Everything has changed in reality. You know, I know Fussell talks about this in this book, in his, in his Great War and Modern Memory, where he talks about how language has fossilized. And they still use the language of earlier wars while describing something that is utterly different to them. Since, like, there was a time when battles were unified by the kind of classical unities of time, place, and action, 
And even the bigger battles you could usually see from one end to the other, uh, maybe with the aid of a telescope. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you look at things like Gettysburg or, I mean, even Gettysburg and things like that are like, there are two or three days. The First World War battles are in practical terms sieges. I think they're better understood as huge sieges. We call them battles. We call the Battle of Britain a battle and it was a giant air campaign. You know, we, the, the word battle has lost all meaning in that sense. Rather than thinking of these as kind of, you know, heroes fighting out there out in the open, these are often people who are getting a few weeks or months in trenches with, with just explosions going off all around them. It's hard to get across just how, how different things have changed. I know we were talking yesterday a bit about, I'd said that, you know, in many ways, modern warfare begins with, the American Civil War and the Franco-Prussian War. That's when you see proper rifles appearing as distinct from muskets. And that's when you see things like early versions of machine guns, like the Gatling gun and stuff like that starts to appear at that point. Look at shelling. That's an extraordinary one when it comes along to World War I. You know, there's one point in 1915, for instance, where it's it's at a place called Neuve-Chapelle, And in less than half an hour, the British fire more shells than they did in the entirety of the Boer campaigns. That's in half an hour, less than 25 minutes, something like that. These are extraordinary figures that we're just not ready for. We talk about the horror of the Somme, and in particular, the first day of the Somme. That, in the English-speaking world, has become kind of iconic for battlefield massacre. There's a day in August 1914 when the French army lose 28,000 people in one day. It goes a long way as well towards when people try and do this kind of modern trope as the French's cheese-eating surrender monkeys or whatever it might be. You know, it just shows how untrue that is, if anything. And Verdun is probably the classic example of that, where the Germans basically are happy to, to use that phrase to bleed the French white because they know the French will not surrender. And the mm. price of not surrendering is losing prodigious numbers of people to protect something that, yeah, has strategic value, but above all has symbolic value. And they are willing to, to lose so many people um, to do that. It's a, it's a horrendous, horrendous sacrifice of these, uh, as Sassoon puts in his poem, unheroic dead who, who feed the guns. Yeah, and I think that's a really important part of actually trying to remember the, the war is actually you have to kind of go both macroscopic and microscopic. You kind of need the context for these numbers that are just unfathomable. And I'm kind of conscious that we're talking about this two years into a world pandemic that has claimed, I believe, is the number five million at this stage. So yeah, it's, not, it's not that we have no concept of, of large scale, but I do think that there is also an element, yes, this is a world war. Yes, it is happening on a lot of different fronts, but it's also very concentrated in some ways in very small places or or enormous deaths over a single day, like you've mentioned about the 28,000 in one day, that you need to look at these numbers and then also go into very specific human experiences to to make those numbers real and put them into a human context. I've recommended it an enormous number of times on this podcast, but I am delighted to be able to recommend it again, which is the Hardcore History podcast has their episodes called Blueprint for Armageddon. The podcast is by a guy called Dan Carlin, and it's excellent. The World War One ones are currently, his older ones he puts behind uh, a paywall because he needs, <laughs> we, we all need to value our work, and I would recommend them. You can download them. I think the, the, the amount is about $15, but 
I will say, I think it's six episodes and each episode is like just shy of four hours long. So this is, is a substantial amount of work. And I think he does a really good job. And I'm very kind of conscious that I, you know, just to, to highlight that I'm, I'm very indebted to him when I, I'm talking about World War One, but he does a great job of highlighting these numbers. Like Greg, you said, the US Civil War is kind of the start of this modern warfare. And, and it's considered, and rightfully so, just a hugely horrendous loss of life. And because obviously in a civil war, everyone who's dying is is a, an American citizen. So you're you're getting double your your American deaths for your for your money. But he Dan Carlin in this series points out that over four years there was six hundred to seven hundred thousand dead, which is a huge number. But it's the same number for the first month of World War One. Yeah. <laughs> and you were saying about the shells as well, that he makes the point that the Russians were making thirty-five thousand shells a month. And but once the fighting starts, they're setting off forty-five thousand shells a day. The kind of scope of this is almost unthinkable. It, it is incredibly difficult. I, I, I felt, felt like another counterpoint he pulled out was very good, which was, I think it's Alexander the Great's army, which he conquered most of the known world and some of the unknown world with was, I believe, around 90,000. And, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, when the Germans moved through Belgium to begin the war, they're sending 750,000 men through Belgium in an outflanking maneuver. That's not even their, <laughs> their main force. I, he quotes someone that reports about watching the army march through a town for 26 hours. Like, I just think it's so beyond a scale of which even now we can understand. But at the same time, that it, it's still intensely human. Like, I'm just calling back to what you were saying about how that tension over whether people are heroes or not. A really great example he pulls out in the podcast is, you know, you have that poem of the Charge of the Light Brigade and this heroic, doomed romance of war that we can look to and say as, oh, it was a failure, but it was a glorious failure. And he said, okay, fine. You watch all of these people, you're, you're, you're the person writing the poem, you're watching all of these people die, and this is this great doomed failure. And then what if you do it again and again and again, at what stage does it stop becoming heroic? And are the people who are involved in in the seventh charge of the Light Brigade that that week are they less heroic than the people who were in bar- involved in the first one? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's where you have that. It's um, it's regularly attributed to um, Einstein. I don't know if he actually said it or not, but where insanity is um, is doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not entirely true because attrition can add up and eventually it can happen, but it's probably true. One thing I would say that's useful with numbers to get your head around these things, anybody who's listening, is think about football stadiums and sports stadiums. I I did my master's thesis back in the day on the Battle of Cannae, which is the biggest battle the Romans ever fight. Uh, they also, they lose. It's roughly 50,000 uh, in Hannibal's army, the Carthaginian army and roughly 80,000 Romans. And these numbers, they just kind of mean nothing to you until you go 50,000 is the capacity of the Aviva Stadium, 80,000 is the capacity of Croke Park, more or less. And you can Mm. put your own stadium into this one. You know, you might go the Roman army there, 80,000, that's Lambeau Stadium in Green Bay, or it's Wembley Stadium. You know, that kind of idea you can do. So I was just, I just checked there to find out. So I mentioned, you know, 
the French losing 28,000 people on one day in August 1914. Well, that's bigger than Carroll Road, where Norwich City play. They lose, that's 27,000 people there. In fact, it's only slightly smaller, and I know you used to live in Nottingham, Rachel, so it's only slightly smaller than the city ground in Nottingham, where they can take in 30,500. So that's, it's a useful way of thinking of it, to just think of your, your local spot, your local city, stadium, whatever it might be, and think about how many people could fit there. And that will, it will give you some kind of perspective on yeah. how horrific this must have been. I talked about, uh, I did a BBC show years ago about the about Hannibal, and I was sitting there on a hillside in Cannae talking about the battle with the battlefield behind me. And I was saying that Roman weapons were pretty much designed to terrorise, or they had that effect anyway. Both Roman writers and Greek writers talked about how horrifying Roman warfare was. And Roman swords chopped off limbs. That was their big thing. They were... They would describe Romans just hacking through people. I said, well, there's 50,000 people dead in this field. More, more Romans were killed in one day than Americans were killed in combat in the entire Vietnam War. And 50,000 dead in one day, and plus horses. And if every single one of them loads like, is like a pint or two of blood on the ground, you're looking at 100,000 pints of blood spilt on the soil of Cannae. When I said that on the TV show... They then kind of faded out to a shot of poppies on a hillside, which seemed appropriate. That's what we do. So and that takes us back to topic. So Yeah. And I think in terms of remembering, and the reason I think we're diving into this is because when we're talking about these things, I think it's important to actually remember them and not just shout remember and say <laughs> and hope for the best. Yeah. Um, and, and with that comes the responsibility of pointing out when, and, you know, I, I do take this with the fact that I am very glad that I hope in my life no decision I ever make will have the people's lives on the line. So it, it's not that I sit here in the comfort of my own home saying, well, if I was planning the the Battle of the Somme, I could do so much better. But I think it is important to remember the failures as well. And I think this is where it comes in from a Catholic point of view, because we were discussing how... It, it is possible for Catholics to pray for the dead and to have some hope of um, moral salvation for those people, that, they, that there is still a journey to go, that their death isn't just the end. And that applies for both the people on the ground and also people making the decisions. And I think that's what lends this month a particularly Catholic perspective, which is that our ability to engage with these problems of the past doesn't need to come down to either dismissing them all as outdated people who had terrible opinions that we would no longer countenance and that we no longer understand, um, or in casting them as as unequivocal heroes with nothing in between, that it was just, uh, as, as Nal said, our brave boys, and, and, and that's all you can possibly say about it, that like there's no question or there's no analysis or there's no... Um, in nuance in there. Um, I think the, the question that, you know, I had my, an episode with Robin recently on nostalgia and, and, and this question of rose tinted nostalgia versus bleak cynicism is, is a recurring theme on this podcast. But I think it is important to remember that um, leadership matters. And I think especially in our, our current day where leadership is showing to matter more and more, whether it's what you care about in terms of 
the way that we're treating the environment, whether it's what you care about in terms of fighting for the rights of the unborn, or whether it's working towards protecting people from the, the ravages of coronavirus or, or whatever it is. But I, I think when we paper over the, the Great War in terms of our, our quote, remembrance, that's when we fail to engage with what I mentioned already, which is the deep absurdity and irony. And and to point these things out is not just to say, oh, it, it, it was actually bad and we shouldn't remember it as, as a good thing. But I think it, because it actually feeds into the way that we think now about all of our institutions. So I have some some quotes here from the, the book we keep referencing, The Great War and Modern Memory by Paul Fussell, which just highlights at least some of the military decisions and actions that that kind of put this into perspective for, I mean, I think that the Somme, I, I would argue that, like you mentioned, Verdun, there's other elements of the, the Great War that need to be more brought to the fore. I think the Somme is kind of the, the go-to one, but there is a sense that it is a, the go-to one for a reason. So in terms of its planning, Fussell sort of points out how completely unimaginative it was and how easily predictable it was, that there was no sense of actually trying to be in, like clever or maintain any kind of surprise. So he says, by the end of June 1916, Haig's planning was finished and the attack on the Somme was ready. Sensing that this time the German defensive wire must be cut and the German frontline positions obliterated, Haig bombarded the enemy trenches for a full week, firing a million and a half shells from 1,537 guns. At 7.30 on the morning of July 1st, the artillery shifted to more distant targets and the attacking waves of 11 British divisions climbed out of their trenches on a 13-mile front and began walking forward. And by 7.31, the mere six German divisions facing them had carried their machine guns upstairs from the deep dugouts where, during the bombardment, they had harboured safely and even comfortably and were hosing the attackers walking towards them in orderly rows or puzzling before the still uncut wire. Out of the 110,000 who attacked, 60,000 were killed or wounded on this day, the record so far. Over 20,000 lay dead between the lines, and it was days before the wounded in no man's land stopped crying out. And then later he also points out um, the attack on Vimy Ridge pressed for five days, gained 70,000 yards at a cost of 160,000 killed and wounded. Yeah, it's it's funny. Actually, Vimy Ridge is kind of very interesting. It has the same kind of place in the Canadian mind as the Psalm does for Ulster Unionists or the GPO does for Irish nationalists. Um, Gallipoli does for Australians. It's, it's the, the baptism of blood for a nation. Really, That's, that's very much what it is. Um, I, I would say, I think it's probably worth kind of putting this one out that Fussell's description of the Psalm there or his analysis of it is probably, it's probably of its time in a way. Uh, and it's, it sounds obscene to say this, but there is a definite move on nowadays to recognize the psalm as in some really strange and obscene way a victory. There's a, a wonderful book about it that came out a few years ago by a chap called Philpot, I think. Yeah, William Philpot, called Bloody Victory, The Sacrifice on the Psalm and the Making of the 20th Century. 
And he argues that the Somme was a victory in many ways. Obviously, it wasn't an outright victory. It wasn't what the British intended to achieve. But over the course of it, they learned, and they learned a lot, and it did degrade German capacity to fight to a huge degree. There's also um, the fact that one of the aims of the Somme was to take pressure off Verdun, where the Germans were bleeding the French white, and that, that worked. But, yeah, it certainly didn't work in terms of the straightforward, like, just bombard them and charge through on the first day that definitely didn't work that was suicidal and counterproductive and and didn't you know it was just just a horrendous situation there one of the things philpott points out as well is we shouldn't forget that the germans were actually um at that point in the war anyway were very 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 good at their job they're not what they are in 1918 when they're just they almost win by accident in 1918 actually because they're so rubbish at that point they're so fatigued they're so ready to collapse that the newly invigorated um, Allied powers, the, with the Americans aiding them, are able to charge through the lines and then just kind of kind of just kind of go cock a hoop. And <laughs> suddenly the Germans are kind of weirdly behind the Allies in strange, complicated ways, and uh, the Allies kind of discipline themselves and get control of the situation. But at that point, almost anything could happen, really. But yeah, during the Somme, it's a strange situation, and yeah, for a long time you have this. The kind of cartoon image of the Western Front is indeed the correct one. You know, that it is this futile, bloody trudge where you are just sacrificing preposterous, prodigious numbers of human lives for the sake of meters. You know, mm. it's, um, it's not the way all the time. It's not the way everywhere. There's a whole stretch of the Western Front where it's almost idyllic compared to the the blood and mud bath of Flanders, but it's, it's definitely a reality. I was just thinking, and I think this is a, a, something that we share, I was thinking of the season four of Blackadder set in the trenches, and there's a there's a scene where they're back at headquarters and they're surveying the land that they have won, and it is literally like a sod of earth on a table, and they're like, and, and what's the scale of this map? And it's it's one-to-one. <laughs> or or there's another speech that Blackadder gives about, uh, you know, I don't want to get myself killed so that General Hay can move his drinks cabinet six inches closer to Berlin. And, and I think that sort of, in some ways, Blackadder is, is such a good representation of the war because it combines that absurdity and that that humor and that cynicism of, of of the ridiculousness of the situation with a real heartfelt punch especially at the end but yeah i think that's true it, it, it's interesting because obviously it's it's a, a version of the war that's written by people and acted by people who had no experience of it whatsoever um, mm. and there is kind of again a counter narrative against it nowadays that it's but i think it's broadly right in that sense i mean if you're dealing with the western front it, it, it was for most of its time a, an absurd atrocity or an atrocious absurdity you know it was it was just horrendous and it was ludicrous you've been i know you were talking yesterday about the fact that people could go home at times mm -hmm. during the war and they'd go home to paris or london and things would although you have total war happening and the factories are all you know, staffed by women. And this is this is kind of a huge driving force. We talk about the suffragettes, and rightly so, but a huge driving force in women getting the vote is things like, well, actually, their contribution to the war. You can, yeah. you, you can make a strong case that most developments in governments over the years have been linked to military uh, performance. You know, the, the great age of aristocracy is the age of cavalry warfare. 
The age mm. of popular assemblies tend to be the age of infantry warfare. Now we're in the age of, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny professional armies and long-range bombs and stuff like that. And I don't know what that means for democracy, really, because we don't have the same kind of thick and bloody personal investment that way. We do as potential targets, but um, not as as actors in a strange way. Yeah, no, the, the Black Order thing is, is worthwhile. And you can see the seeds of it going back to, it's in the late 20s. We're talking about this yesterday a bit. Um, Sheriff's play, Journey's End. For roughly the first decade or so after the war, people don't talk about it very much. They, well, that's the roaring 20s. People are having fun. It's the world you see in P.G. Woodhouse, basically. You know, everybody's off in carriages and living it up and the flappers are dancing and cocktails and whatever it will be. And it's kind of glossing over the horrors that have just happened a few minutes earlier. You know, I think again of, I mean, Woodhouse certainly wasn't making a point, but if you look at the Drones Club, the odds are that most of them have brothers who've died in the trenches, you know, in terms of the Jeeves and Worcester books. So, yeah, it's very strange. And then it seems to be really only in the late 20s, when you get people like Sassoon writing his poem about the men in, men in Gate, when you get Sheriff's Journey's End, that you see people talking about it. There's, there's, there's a quote that you had and you showed me earlier from the Vassell book from... Robert Graves, maybe you could, if you could read that. Yeah, and I think this is important because I think it, it is also important to highlight that there are there are good reasons why we misremember this war. When I say good, I, I don't mean, I don't mean virtuous reasons. I just mean that they 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 come from genuine sources, and one of them is 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 just the fact that it was a, a horrific war to to communicate. And yeah, so there was an interview with Robert Graves, the great writer Robert Graves, and he said the funny thing was that. You went home on leave for six weeks or six days, but the idea of being and staying at home was awful because you were with people who didn't understand what this was all about. And the interviewer, Leslie Smith, says, didn't you want to tell them? And he replies, you couldn't. You can't communicate noise. Noise never stopped for one moment, ever. And I think that that sense of like the lack of communication, and I think it's underscored, like like you said, there's a there's a real dichotomy between what comes after the war and what goes on during the war. That like you could have this bleak experience followed by the Roaring Twenties, but as you mentioned before, that 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 there's this weird, deeply weird combination of it going on right in the middle of the war. I think World War Two is much more a war that affects civilians. You've got the Blitz, and you've got all kinds of privations at home because of it whereas world war one like you said life goes on that like you know you you get the you get the train and the bus and you get the the, the boat back home and it's the same people who always see you there was a, a quote in the Fussell book which from arnold bennett saying that late in 1917 he had breakfasted in the trenches and dined in his club in london that like you could go from that kind of war and what's that sort of like whiplash of of experience does to you which i think and, and and the other part that i found amazing which is also in the book which is to remember the insanely strong postal system that was in in, in place in the trenches that to continue the 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 subscriptions of your magazines, you just changed your address to the trenches and, and it would get to you. You would get the newspapers a day late and you have these amazing stories because I think the other part of it is, and it's so interesting that it is so uncommunicable because you have these incredibly literate and literary people in the trenches. And it's not just the officers 
you, you know, the Oxbridge crew that that come in with, with their sort of deep English and classical learning. It's also the ordinary people, the very ordinary people were engaged with a lot of this self-improvement and the, the workmen's institutes. And I think there was something called the National Home Reading Union, which sounds amazing. And, and so all of these people had these these editions of like the, the world's classics and the Everyman's Library and all of these great things. And Fussell has a, has a great quote about someone who actually is Jeff, Jeff Jeffrey Keynes, the, the brother of John Maynard Keynes, was poring over Courtney and Smith's bibliography of Samuel Johnson. And in Macedonia, R.W. Chapman edited Boswell's Journey of a Tour of the Hebrides and Johnson's Journey into the Western Island of Scotland. So you're sitting in the trenches editing these ridiculously highbrow intellectual books. And and in some ways, to me, that just underscores, again, how odd it must have been and how much that totally changes the outlook and the mentality of the modern world to come. That almost by being so well-read and having such a vision of humanity at the time actually impacts why we're still wrestling and why it is important to remember the Great War. Because I think, to me, the Great War is where it sets in place all of these things in society that are still huge things to wrestle with the, in, in, in our modern age. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's true. I mean, gosh, you could say probably talk for hours on almost any clause you just said there. The huge industrialization of war does something I think, to our understanding of humanity, basically, and the human life and the value of a human life. Life is cheap. I, I think that happens. And, and it's strange that it happens at a time where, if you like, in almost a secular way, the heights that life can reach are really being pushed at that point. I mean, we don't want to kind of make, you, you don't want to romanticize that too much, of course. I mean, on the one hand, we should talk about like the kind of autodidacticism that was going on, the sense of the working men trying to pull themselves up that way. And it was, and not, it wasn't just by their own boots or anything like that. There was like cooperatives and stuff like that. They were actually working together. There was a real sense of, of solidarity. And you have like whole, you know, the, the, the pals, you know, groups of lads going off from villages in, in Manchester or Lancashire or Yorkshire, Northumbria, wherever, and heading off, and many of them not coming back. You see it in, in particular Anglican churches in England, where you'll have just the names, big long lists of names of all these people who died. And that's, I mean, it is, it's a whole generation that, that really is deracinated in, in, in England in particular. I mean, although World War II is a bigger war, it's a more murderous war in total, from the point of view of England, and as English speakers, that's pretty much our main optic on this, from the point of view of England. World War One is much more destructive, much more lethal that way. But yeah, I do think it's the industrialization of death that in many ways sets things up for the Holocaust, for the gulags, for napalm bombings, for, for Hiroshima, whatever they might be. They're all mapped out in a way in, in, in the mud of the Western Front. I, I think it's interesting as well when you talked about, yeah, that, that Graves quote, to go back to that one, and about the notion that he you just couldn't describe what it was like because of the sound in particular the noise of it that you you couldn't you couldn't convey that and that is one of the strange things about the western front is that when you're in the trenches and the, the trenches were often just the top bit of a huge underground structure that would kind of go down and often could go right under no man's land but when you're in the trenches 
you didn't see a whole lot. You were essentially walking about in little tunnels and peeking up over the top, you know. So your your field of vision was pretty narrow and other senses in a way became more important. You know, when you read anybody's kind of graves his own kind of goodbye to all that, but if you read anything really from the time, what comes across are the sound and the smell and the sense of feel. You know, they'll talk about the bombs constantly going off. Graves has this kind of section which he obviously romanticizes where he talks about machine guns in a way the sound they're making and in a way that they couldn't actually have done. But it does convey the sense of just how noisy, how loud it was. The trenches would have stank. And one of the extraordinary things in terms of feeling is is the mud, the constant, constant oozing, slimy mud. And people talk about this in so many accounts of it being almost like quicksand that it would suck you away, you know, just getting stuck in this. It, it's just really, really repulsive, which is one of the things that I was thinking about. You mentioned yesterday, and I haven't seen this yet, the Peter Jackson, I don't know what you would call it, but let's say it's a, it's a revision or a polishing of First World War footage. Um, they Shall Not Grow Old, is that? Yeah, that's it, yeah. And, and I mean, I'd be curious to know what you think of it, because one of the things that struck me just in principle about it is that if sound and smell and feel and touch were, were, if you like, the defining senses of the First World War. What's it like when you try and reconstruct it based on sight? Because I kind of wonder if cinema is actually the worst medium, in a way, for conveying this. You know, a, a radio play is the way we should be going. Maybe with a little scratch card that releases a foul odours when appropriate. I don't know. Yeah, and I do think that will always be a limit. I thought that his, it, it is a documentary I think it's very interesting the way that they set it up. They don't have any visible sort of mechanisms of the the documentary makers. The only things you hear are that are not sort of within the frame of the film are the voices of of, of people who fought in it and, and recordings of their interviews that kind of give you some of the context for what you're seeing. But yeah, it's a, it's amazing in making this documentary. They took the the footage from World War One and scrubbed it and cleaned it and colorized it and slowed it down i think in some ways we forget like it's so easy to think of that old footage of that sort of herky-jerky slightly too fast thing that you almost don't even realize that it's too fast because you're just used to seeing black and white footage that way you know back when people used real film that 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 you needed to, to run it at a particular speed and so you have this very unnatural black and white silent presentation of the footage of the films that of the war and that's what we're used to and, and they take it slow it down colorize it the other thing they do is they do add sound and so they had lip readers who were lip reading what people were saying in particular shots and had actors kind of dub in voices so that you could get a sense of it and they did add now i don't know whether you could ever capture what however many thousands of shells sounds like through film, but they did add at least some sound effects to shots of cannons, to shots of shells, through shots of explosions. But I did find it very moving because it takes the war out of something which fits again, like we were saying, into this very neatly defined box of, of black and white footage. And that's how I picture it and it has nothing to do with me because that's not what life looks like to me and actually allows you to peer into the faces of these very ordinary men who are, are in the middle of this this situation. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that 
this is kind of a clunky segue on my part, but the, the thing that I was thinking with this as well is that, um, yeah, it's difficult to talk about this. It's difficult to talk about this in an ordinary way because it seems so remote. And mm. given Peter Jackson, it, it kind of seems appropriate to, to point out that arguably, you know, the, there's a strong case to be made at the greatest work of 20th century art, effectively, to come out of the war is, is Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, now, you don't want to kind of overplay this too much, but I think I think there's a case to be made for it. Um, I, yeah, certainly. I in in the interview we had with Holly Ordway a couple of episodes back, I made the, just just the singular point, but just to say that I think one of the many reasons, but one of the major reasons why Peter Jackson was actually able to tell that story so well through film is because of his own obsession with World War One. That in being so in tuned with World War One and its its experience actually enables you to tell what Tolkien was trying to tell with the the Lord of the Rings. And like you said, you don't want to overplay it. It's not an allegory. He would rise out of his grave if we tried to suggest that it was, but that he he does admit that he was profoundly influenced by World War One. I. I mean, I just, if I can just kind of grab and just do like a paragraph or so, but it's, I mean, the point is broader, really. When you get to the bit where the lads Frodo and Sam and Gollum are going through the, the dead marshes and Sam trips in the mud. And I mean, it's just mud everywhere, stagnant mud everywhere they look, holes in the ground, sludge everywhere. And then we go, right? So Sam, having hurry, hurrying forward again, Sam tripped, catching his foot in some old root or tussock. He fell and came heavily on his hands, which sank deep into sticky ooze, so that his face was brought close to the surface of the dark mirror. There was a faint hiss, and noisome smell went up. The lights flickered and danced and swirled. For a moment, the water below him looked like some window, glazed with grimy glass through which he was peering. Wrenching his hands out of the bog, he sprang back with a cry. There are dead things, dead faces in the water, he said with horror. Dead faces. Gollum laughed. The dead marshes. Yes, yes, that is their names, he crackled. You should not look in when the candles are lit. Who are they? What are they? Asked Sam, shuddering, turning to Frodo, who is now behind him. I don't know, said Frodo in a dreamlike voice, but I've seen them too, in the pools when the candles were lit. They lie in all the pools, pale faces, deep, deep under the dark water. I saw them, grim faces and evil, noble faces and sad. Many faces, proud and fair, and weeds in their silver hair. and uh, But all foul, all rotting, all dead. A fell light is in them. Frodo hid his head and his eyes in his hands. I know not who they are, but I thought I saw there men and elves and orcs beside them. Yes, yes, said Gollum. All dead, all rotten. Elves and men and orcs. The dead marshes. There was a great battle long ago, yes. So they told him when Smeagol was young when I was young before the precious came. It was a great battle. Tall men with long swords and terrible elves and orcs shrieking. They fought on the plain for days and months at the black gates, but the marshes have grown since then, swallowed up the graves, always creeping, creeping. And it, it, it's striking that he says that they fought not just for days, but for months. That's not a battle as we understand it. That's the language of the First World War. It's certainly not... A medieval battle in the style that obviously the Lord of the Rings is fantasy, not medieval, but it, it is medieval esque. Yeah, yeah, and it it, it it doesn't fit into that at all. 
your medieval battles take place in a space of a couple of hours. Mm. Likewise, uh, Roman Greek battles, you're talking, everything's done within the space of a day, not least you're finished by nightfall because you're usually hitting your own guys if you can't see them. You know, so it's you, you fight in the daytime, whereas when you get in the First World War, battles, as they call them, go on for months. And that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing this plain of mud with bodies left to rot in the mud for months and now many, many and centuries. And, and that was the reality of the trenches. You would have, you know, Tolkien wasn't there on the first day of the Somme. He arrived, I think, about a month later or something. But he was, or shortly afterwards, anyway, some, maybe a couple of weeks but he was there for four months and eventually had to be pulled. It was trench fever that did him in. He had to come back. Aside from losing good friends there, he had seen how horrific it was. And at that point, when you've got people being shot down in no man's land, a lot of them are just left there. You can't get them back. That's the kind of context in which you have like the, the heroic chaplains, the Father Willie Doyle and people like that running out and kind of looking after the dead and stuff like that. So many people are just left to rot and even these kind of beautiful noble aristocratic people uh, as the elves in the battlefield have all been reduced to things that are fell and rotting lying there in the mud just lifeless and i think that ties in very closely with what i was saying about this huge change that we're still wrestling with and i have quite a long quote here from the journalist philip gibbs who who was reporting and, and was in the midst of the, the war with the soldiers. And it is, a, it is a long quote, but I do want to read it out just because I think it is so central to uh, how we understand ourselves today. So he says, It was astonishing how loudly one laughed at the tales of gruesome things, of war's brutality, I with the rest of them. I think at the bottom of it was a sense of the ironical contrast between the normal ways of civilian life and this hark back to the caveman code. It made all our old philosophy of life monstrously ridiculous. It played the hat trick with the gentility of modern manners. Men who had been brought up to Christian virtues, who had prattled their little prayers at their mother's knees, and who had grown up to a love of poetry, painting, music, and the gentle arts, oversensitized to the subtleties of half-tones, delicate scales of emotion, fastidious in their choice of words, in their sense of beauty, found themselves compelled to live and act like ape men. And it was abominably funny. It was, I think, the laughter of mortals at the trick which had been played on them by an ironical fate. They had been taught to believe that the whole object of life was to reach out to beauty and love, and that mankind, in its progress to perfection, had killed the beast instinct, cruelty, bloodlust, the primitive, savage law of survival by tooth and claw and club and axe. All poetry, all art, all religion had preached this gospel and this promise. Now that ideal had broken like a china vase dashed to a hard ground. The contrast between that and this was devastating. It was, in an enormous, world-shaking way, like a highly dignified man in a silk hat, morning coat, creased trousers, spats and patent boots, suddenly slipping on a piece of orange peel and sitting, all of a heap, with his silk hat flying, in a filthy gutter. The wartime humour of the soul roared with mirth at the sight of all that dignity and elegance despoiled. There's a lot going on there, and there's and it points in some very interesting directions. One thing that occurs to me, weirdly, is um, 
if you think of the writing of G.K. Chesterton at this point, where Chesterton before the war had been this great champion of, oh, heroic manly combat and how noble warfare is. And if you look at even the end of Napoleon and Notting Hill, which has, you know, it's a scene of carnage, but it's somehow seen as like a purifying carnage. You know, we, we talk in Ireland about Patrick Pierce and his blood sacrifice ideas and stuff like that. What we don't tend to realize is that everybody was talking about that. That was really common language at the time. And this just brings home just how horrendous this actually is in practice. And yeah, people, there was something funny about it, that you have this extraordinary, refined civilization in certain ways. Look at E.M. Forster's book. Look at um, at Howard's End. You know, this is a world where you've got these kind of English middle-class people going off to German concerts, and they're all very refined, just before the war, of course. Mm -hmm. The German stuff stops being quite as popular uh, in the war, Uh, just as it stopped being the second most popular language in the U.S. during the war. I I think... Actually, something that gets forgotten is that while I think from a modern point of view, we mainly associate Germany with this military history, but just before the war, what it was known for, and they always had this kind of military streak of, of, of severity, but with it was it was the center of culture. Like everyone, everyone was jealous of it for its music, its philosophy, its art, like it was the height of culture. And yet in the middle of it, you had this sort of contrary stroke of, of brutal militarism. Yeah, and it's a real lesson, it's the culture. And we, we can romanticize this very easily. There's a very common phrase in, in modern Catholic circles, which has huge value but can be overplayed at a superficial level, which is the notion of being saved by beauty. Dorothy Day used to talk about it, but she actually meant the beauty of not just aesthetics, but, you know, the beauty of, like, deep, deep, deep kindness, of, of that kind of kind of beauty as well. It's not simply being pretty. And, and this gets at that as well, you know, where the phrase you read there, what was it? It was, they've been taught that the whole object of life was to reach out to beauty and love. And we can talk about these, about the transcendentals, about these glorious things that we should be doing. They are hugely important. But in the trenches, a vision of life that was focused on doing that was torn asunder, fell apart. I mean, these are the people who, you know, in the case of Ireland, we'd come out of the Celtic twilight period, the Celtic revival and all of that. In England, it's the arts and crafts movement have been about 10 minutes earlier. You know, Art Nouveau is happening in Austria, you know, and, and elsewhere. There's some real beauty being generated, and yet horror is generated at the same time. It's not quite the level of concentration camp guards listening to Brahms and Liszt, but it's it's not far off it. You know, you're, you're kind of approaching the fact that beauty on its own isn't a panacea for, for what we need. And in fact, what's really interesting as well is, you know, you, you talked about men brought up the Christian virtues prattling their little yeah. prayers at mother's knees. We often in the church today, there can be a tendency to put down all of our failings now to Vatican II. This happens. Or in a slightly more nuanced version of it, to poor applications of Vatican II. That's a, that's a, that's a better take on it. But nonetheless, they're both there. And what we can miss is that so many things were in huge trouble decades before it. Mass attendance in Belgium and the Netherlands was already plummeting in the 30s. We, we have a tendency to talk about, say, C.S. Lewis, and, and rightly, but and, you know, and how great he is and what he says and so forth. But what we rarely 
grapple with is the extent to which he was, let's say, evangelizing in the context of a country where religion was already in decline. That's why he was evangelizing. And if you look at his essay on apologetics, it's quite clear that people don't understand the language of Christianity anymore. This is a response to things that are, and, you know, it obviously doesn't stick either. Because, um, but this is a response to, to things that had changed. How easy was it for people to, to keep believing that God was on their side and on the side of right when all of the European nations that tore each other apart were Christian nations. You know, the Germans, as much as anybody else, had, you know, got mit us, you know, on their, on their, their uniforms. Everybody was claiming that God was on their side. And if that yeah. was the case, what was God really doing? Where was God on the psalm? And it was very hard to explain this. And this is where people like, you know, the chaplains, the Willie Doyles and people like that are important. It's where you need, we need to think about them. We need to think about them. And um, Monsignor Gleeson, who we, we know from the famous painting of the, the Monster Fusiliers. But the fact, in some ways, the fact that anybody held onto their faith at all yeah. in, that, in that giant, giant abattoir of mud and blood is, is, is almost miraculous, to be honest with you. And, and like you said, a fight of Christians against Christians. And it wasn't confined to a small army of, what, 75,000, that it was millions. And so it affects everyone. And that I, I'm always struck by the fact that both David Jones, who's another of the war poets, and Siegfried Sassoon both converted to Catholicism. And so there is hope for redemption within people, even after horrors like that. But like you said, they're probably the exception because it's so mind altering to try and think, to put yourself in that position and what that does to your understanding of the world, particularly if you've been brought up like they had been, to believe in in sort of divine action in a very literal way or, or the like the idea of the right of God or that God is on our side or that that it is that this was in some ways a sort of ordained experience by God. But I think that also ties into probably the last point we're going to touch on here is in terms of remembering them, how it then even with all of that, it does a disservice to not incorporate the fact that these men were Christian into the way that we memorialize them, which seems to be one of our biggest obstacles in actually correctly assessing both getting to the reality of their motivations and their experience, but also in terms of carrying out their own wishes. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And it applies everywhere, really. We, we need to think about if people were Christian, what would they have wanted of us now? If we want to honour people, what would they have wanted of us now? I, I think about this often in the context of the 1916 case in Ireland, for instance. There was an extraordinary lecture given around the time of the centenary of the 1916 Rising. So we're looking at April, maybe March. I think it was April um, 2016. And the Irish president, Michael D. Higgins, gave this, this fascinating and in many ways, brilliant lecture about the nature of commemoration, in which he made, among other things, the very important point that commemorations and commemoration ceremonies usually tell us more about the people doing the commemorating than the people being commemorated. And it's something we need to watch out for, I think. Now, one of the strange things in it, though, is that while he made a lot of very important points in terms of criticism, he also... I think, failed in his own test. He, he didn't meet his own standards. 
he talked about the things that influenced the rising at the time. And he goes through a whole list of things. And religion only came up in the context of imperialist propaganda, which is particularly weird. And we'll talk about the rising another day. But what I really struck me about this is that overwhelmingly everybody who took part in the 1916 Rising was religious, to one degree or another. Some of them converted while in prison before their executions and so forth. You, you, you find this, this is a very clear case of, of people being religious and being inspired by it. And what that means, I think, is that if we remember them and remove their faith from how we remember them, we are not serving them properly. We are not serving them as they would wish to have been served. Take that in the context of the world wars. World War I in particular, you're looking at people who are, to one degree or another, religious. They're overwhelmingly Christian. I'm not saying they're especially devout. I'm not saying their faith is especially sophisticated. It may well be a faith of convention rather than conviction, but it's who they are. It's more difficult if you're Protestant, I think, in terms of how you work out what happens after death. But certainly for Catholics, we believe very strongly that we can help each other. We can help each other even when we die. The dead help us. The dead in heaven pray for us here on earth. And here on earth, we are called to pray for those in purgatory. We are called to pray for those on their way to heaven, such that their post-mortal, if you like, purification is less painful, less arduous, less difficult, um, more tolerable, whatever it might be. The classical way people used to say it in terms of time, but that gets into questions of what purgatory is. Um, but certainly for it to be less painful and, and, and less difficult. We're told in the Bible to visit people in prison. Well, praying for the souls in purgatory is essentially doing this. We are praying for the souls in prison after death. You know, you get this line in, I think it's Matthew's gospel, where he, our Lord talks about, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will not be released from prison until the last penny is paid. There's a requirement there. It's a recognition that this is a prison that will end. That it will that you can go forward. Nothing, and to say it elsewhere, nothing imperfect, nothing impure can enter heaven. So that's the process, and we believe that we are acting for the dead. It's why we have funeral masses now. It's why young children, very young children, when they die, they don't actually have technically funeral masses. If they've been baptized, they don't have. If they're very young, they don't have sins to kind of stain them in a way. They'll go mm. they're straight to heaven. We don't need to pray for their souls. But everybody else, this is how we help each other. And we're, we're doing our dead a disservice when we don't do this, when we don't drive home the fact that this is what funeral masses are for. This is what months mind masses are for. This is what anniversary masses are for. This is what November is for in many ways. It's remembering the dead and not just remembering them, but acting on their behalf and doing what we can to help them. And from a religious point of view, whether that be our religion or their religion, if we're not doing that, we are serving them very poorly indeed. And I think that's a, a I think a perfect way to to close out this episode of the podcast and, and just to remind everyone listening to take this opportunity to pray for the dead, whether that means people who have died in wars or just any member of your family or loved ones that that has passed on, that this is why we hold this month for remembering and doing more than just remembering, but actually acting on it. Before we 
close out entirely, I want to give you, Greg, a little moment of a, a spotlight to talk about your project at the moment. I've referenced it quite a lot on the podcast, but Leaven, the magazine you're producing for Catholic writing and thinking in Ireland. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, we've been going since April now. Uh, we Our fourth issue is out at the moment, and it's it's mainly a magazine for, well, any kind of thinking Catholics. That's really what we're trying for. We're trying for as young an audience as we can get. We're trying for as young a contributorship as we can get in a way. We're trying to be something fresh and new and showing in itself that there is life and thought in the church in Ireland today. I think you can be serious and faithful and kind and balanced to consider a Catholic and we should be able to show that. So we're, we've been working away on this. Rachel's on the, the, the editorial board, so she uh, she's a key member of the team there. And we've got exciting news coming up because the next issue of it, issue five, will be the first one that we'll have printed copies of. We've yet to work out the mechanics of doing this, but we've had a very generous sponsor that will enable us to print at least a few hundred copies of issues going forward. So that's a start. Primarily, it's a digital product. We do hope people will will sign up and try that. And you can you can get it at uh, leaven.ie. That's L-E-A-V-E-N. Uh, .ie. I would say the current issue, I think, I mean, they've all been good. I think you should definitely sign up. There's no doubt about that. And the current issue, uh, while sadly lacking in an article by Rachel, does have one by the aforementioned Niall Gooch, who we talked about today. He's got a piece about the English horror writer, for want of a better phrase, M.R. James, who wrote mm-hmm. in the early years of the 20th century, um, more or less, you know, approaching the time of World War One, at a time when the Victorian age and the old age was starting to repla- be replaced with our age of industrialization and alienation and atomization in a way. So um, I think you might find that that an interesting thing. We've also got um, a hefty roundtable discussion on, um, on climate change, where we have not just theologians, but an economist who's, who qualified in the engineering department and uh, a biologist discussing it as well. So we've got science and economics there as well as theology. And we've got hefty interview with a Norwegian nun who is also a fairly accomplished particle physicist. So we've got we've got a lot of stuff on that one. The coming issue, we're still working on it now. Rachel has a curious piece in it on stamps, which is which I'm looking forward to, to reading. And we've got all sorts of things on wolves in medieval Ireland. We've got something on the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We've got a, a lengthy interview with uh, an American theoretical physicist, theoretical particle physicist, which is, again, one of our key things is showing that science and faith go hand in hand. Um, they don't always, of course, but they, they certainly can and should, because at the end of the day, uh, truth is truth, however we come to it. So um, there's a lot there. And uh, if you go over to leaven.ie or follow us online, um, at LevenMag will do the job on Twitter or Instagram, L-E-A-V-E-N-M-A-G, and the Facebook group as well. Uh, if you go to LevenMag on Facebook, you'll you'll find us too. So I hope there's something there for for everyone. Wonderful. Thanks so much for, for spotlighting it. And it's, it's wonderful work. And I think it's great that and I, I believe you, you will be <laughs> accepting um, suggestions of contributors from all over the world. But I think it's also important that you've maintained a certain Irish approach to it, which is not to say that it's of exclusive interest to Irish people, but to 
carve out a space in which it is not just a British, as much as we've talked about British history in this episode, that uh, English-speaking experiences of the faith are not either British or American, and that they there can be more localised and more nuanced perspectives from a lot of different places in the world. And so I think that's great as well. Um, and yeah, thank you very much. And I have one last question, which is, which I forgot to remind you of, and I have forgotten myself, which is, what are you enjoying at the moment? Oh, what am I enjoying? I'm not enjoying the weather. That's turned. <laughs> Um, I seem to be dividing my my leisure time, uh, such as I have it, between uh, watching uh, repeats of Frasier on television, which uh, may have been sparked in some way by an early Levin article. Uh, uh, well, Yachlin wrote a piece, well, Yachlin O'Callaghan, a piece about watching Frasier in the last year of his father's life, watching that with his dad and enjoying sharing that with him and the, the ordinariness of sitcoms that way. So that's that's one thing. I mentioned Purgatory, so uh, I am reading Dante at the minute. I'm on I'm on the second part of the Divine Comedy, and which is extraordinary. I mean, it's it's, it's what's mm-hmm. really surprising is how readable it is. I mean, it requires a bit of work in the footnotes, but um, yeah, it's, it's very, very readable. And thirdly, I am reading um, Mike Mignola's various incarnations of Hellboy in his comics. I'm reading a lot of that. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary stuff. It's it's good. It's 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 fun. It's it's scary at moments. Um and it's yeah, it's definitely worthwhile. So I'm dabbling in high and low art, shall we say. Wonderful. I think I'll put in two myself. I watched I actually unbelievably had not watched the whole way through I'd seen parts of before this, but I watched Oh Brother Where Art Thou with my dad. Um, a week ago and knew I was going to love it. It was one of those things that I was kicking myself for taking so long to getting around to actually. I still have sitting through. You haven't? No, I've had, I've had it. I, I missed in the cinema and I've got it on DVD and like a fair few of my films, it's covered in dust and needs my attention. Well, I would say, I honestly think for one of those like great classic kind of movies it's very watchable it's not a slog at all i think it's very very fun and then the other one i'll say is i listened to an audiobook read by christopher lee which is excellent of the essentially the ghost stories of agatha christie it's called the hound of death and i thoroughly enjoyed that i thought it was excellent so that is what i've been enjoying I'd like to hear that. If you ever get a chance, he did uh, Christmas carols. He did an album of Christmas carols at one point with death metal music. It's quite an achievement. Uh, Christopher, a man of, of many talents. And deep faith, actually. Oh, really? I didn't know. Yeah. So I think that that's all we have time for on this episode, despite that tantalizing Christopher Lee trivia at the end. Um, but thank you very much for listening. And as always, you can reach out to us. You can follow us online at, on Instagram. It's at Risking Enchantment Podcast, or you can follow myself on Twitter at Seeking Watson. Um, please rate it, please share it, and please continue to support us in whatever way you can. And thanks again for listening. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.